We'll turn in your Bibles with me this morning once again to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And as you're making your way to Romans chapter 1, now would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. This is God's Word. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him But they they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Will you pray with me? Father, we would ask that uh, your spirit would come now. Uh, to instruct us, to lead us, to guide us through this important passage. We thank you for the ground thus far we've covered, all that we have learned together as a church family and the many months that are ahead of us as we explore uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Lord, my heart this morning is for uh, any unbelievers who would be here, uh, who would hear the gospel perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the hundredth time. We have no idea, but today is the day of salvation, and we ask that uh, you would draw someone to yourself. Lord, I pray for believers, that they would be uh, instructed, that they would be encouraged, that they would recall all that they previously were before they received grace. Lord, I can't help but think of The great pastor, uh, John Newton, former slave trader, who said before he died that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. He had the balance. He had the right perspective. He never uh, looked down upon those around him because he remembered he was once there himself. May we learn that lesson from Newton this morning. May we remember all that we were before grace came crashing into our lives. Look forward to a special time as we continue to worship you together now in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think by this point you have memorized the title of the message. The title of the message is A Grim Indictment, Part 3. If you are visiting with us this morning, I should tell you that We have been walking slowly, ever so slowly, through the book of Romans. And for the last three weeks, we have been exploring Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. One of the very important themes that emerges in sacred scripture over and over again is this. Sinners are guilty. Have you seen that theme in the word of God? Sinners are guilty. It is not a popular theme. It is the theme that you may fail to hear from many pulpits all around the land, but you must remember that that is, in fact, a very important and dominant theme, that sinners are guilty. We have seen this theme emerge over and over again in verses 21 to 23. And we have learned together that in the scope of these short verses that there are five indictments 
Thus far, we have looked at four of those indictments. Let let me remind you uh, what those indictments are as we review just for a moment. Indictment number one is found in verse 21. We learn here that the sinful creature has failed to honor God as God. He has failed to honor God as God. May I say this, that even if that were the only indictment, if the sinful creature fails to honor God as God, the sinful creature falls under the weightiness of God's judgment and wrath. And that is wrath that will be experienced for all eternity. Sinful creatures have failed to give God the glory that he deserves and the glory that he demands. The second indictment also found in verse 21 is that the sinful creature has failed to give thanks to God. And we learned here that there is a necessary connection between honoring God and giving thanks to God. That is, you can't have one without the other. If you fail to honor God, by definition, you fail to give thanks to God. If you fail to give thanks to God, by definition, you fail to honor God. Indictment number three, also found in verse 21, is the sinful creature has failed to think thoughts after God. Such a mind, then, is not focused on eternity. It is focused on the here and now. Such a mind is not focused on God or the things of God. This sinful mind is focused on me, me, me. Such a mind is is conformed to the pattern of this world rather than being conformed by God and the ways of God. And then indictment number four is also found in verse 21. Indictment number four is that the sinful creature has failed to have a heart for God. The very center of their being, that is their heart. You remember the word cardia. When you go to your cardiologist, you go to not the foot doctor, not the hand doctor, not the brain doctor. The cardiologist is the heart doctor. The very center of their, their cardia, their hearts are foolish and darkened. And while God expects our hearts to be tender and repentant and believing and born again, what we find in the heart of the unconverted is the very opposite. We find that in the heart of every pagan, every unbeliever is a heart that is foolish and darkened. And remember, as I prayed, as I uttered the words of John Newton, Newton knew very well that as a former slave trader, what his heart was like before he received grace. And before we look out into the sea of faces in our community and point our bony fingers at them because they have foolish and darkened hearts, we need to remember we were in the exact same place before grace came cascading into our lives. This is a person in verse 21 that fails to have a heart for God. Now, these are the four indictments that we've seen thus far. These are the the formal and legal accusations that are leveled against the sinful creatures who are not yet in right standing with God. 
One of the things that has been a, a resounding theme that has come from this pulpit over the years is the theme that emerged in the days of the Reformation. The cry of the Reformation was this, how can a sinful person stand in the presence of a holy God? And we have learned time and time again, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only way that we can stand in right relationship to God. It's not based on what we have done. It is based on what Christ has accomplished in our stead. This morning, Lord willing, we will come to the conclusion of this short study in verses 21 to 23. And I want you to see the fifth and final indictment in the scope of these passages. And I think that you'll agree that like the other four indictments, this fifth indictment is a grim indictment. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 22. Paul says, claiming to be wise. I hope you have a pen today, a a highlighter. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Indictment number five is this. The sinful creature has failed to worship God as he demands. The sinful creature has failed to worship God as he demands. And our strategy this morning for unpacking this indictment will be to provide a four-fold set of headings. And those headings will be designed to show you in a crystal clear way how the sinful creature has failed to worship God as he demands. Let me give you those four headings in advance or already in your notes. If you have your notes before you, we will first of all look at the we'll look at the posture of the sinner. Then we'll look at the problem that the sinner has. Then we'll spend some time looking at the pagan exchange And then finally, we'll close by looking at the price that this sinful creature must pay. So first of all, the posture, the posture. I want you to see that this is a posture of supreme arrogance and presumption. The claim of the unconverted creature is something that ought to to blow you away. Look at verse 22, and if you have a highlighter, I would encourage you to highlight that word claiming, claiming. That word claiming comes from a Greek term that means this. It means to insist in an unqualified manner. You say, what does that mean? We do it all the time. How many of you would consider yourself to be an opinionated person? Oh, yeah, come on. Three of you? We all have our opinions, right? It goes something like this. The new, I'm gonna, I'll give you a few of my hot buttons, right? The New York Yankees are horrible. That is an unqualified claim. That is my passionate claim. So passionate that I remember when my son Nathan was about five years old, we taught him, we taught my daughter, you don't hate anything, right? You teach your kids that at the dinner table, right? You don't even hate broccoli. Don't ever say that. One day we're driving down the road and Nathan says, hey, dad, may I ask you a question? And I said, well, sure. What is it, son? He said, is it okay to hate the Yankees? (laughs) Well, that's an easy one. Yeah. I said, yeah, it's absolutely. It's okay to hate the Yankees. 
<laughs> I didn't know that he had a second question. He said, is it okay then to hate the, the Los Angeles Lakers? Absolutely it's okay to hate the Los Angeles Lakers, right? Well, those are some negative things. Let's get real positive. The Seahawks are the greatest football team in the NFL. I'm just, I, I, like, if you're not on the bandwagon, it's time to get on, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm opinionated, but so are you, because some of you are saying, the Seahawks stink. Like, when's the last time they did anything, right? Some of you say something like this, if I can be a little bit lighthearted. Hawaiian pizza is the most unbelievable pizza ever invented. Now, some of you would say, pineapple on pizza? That's the sickest thing I've ever heard, right? It's like, I can tell that the expressions on your face is like, wow, you're engaged. It's like pineapple pizza, Seahawks, Yankees, Lakers. We all have our opinions. We make these unqualified claims and there is no time for negotiation. That's what's happening here in verse 22. When Paul levels this fifth indictment against the sinful creature, he says they make a claim. They make an unqualified claim. It means to make an assertion. It means to make a bold statement without equivocating there's no time for discussion there's no time for debate they make this claim now look at the the nature of this bold claim paul spells it out very clearly claiming to be wise this is not about the yankees this is not about the the seahawks it's not about hawaiian pizza the claim of the sinful creature is this i am a man of wisdom. This is a bold claim. Now, you are likely familiar with the word that is translated wise. Do you see that there in verse 22? The word wise comes from a Greek word that we're all familiar with. When we speak of philosophy, philosophy that is the love, phileo, the love, sophos, the love of wisdom. Wisdom here, you see, is a word that means a person who has accumulated over the years a lot of wealth and knowledge and discernment. Now, I want you to think about this. And I, I hope this will help to bring all that we've learned over the last three weeks together for you. The person that is making this claim, it is a bold, unequivocal claim. The person making the claim is the same sinful creature who has failed to honor God as God. Are you with me? This is the same sinful creature who has failed to give thanks to God who has failed to think God's thoughts after God, who has failed to have a heart for God. The same sinful creature whose mind is futile and whose heart is foolish and darkened makes the bold claim to be wise. And you say to yourself, are you out of your Mind. You see, what's happening here is this. It's no different than a homeless person who says, I live in the White House. 
Well, that's crazy. You're homeless. This claim is no different than a second grader who boasts about earning a PhD. Like, dude, you haven't even made it to the third grade. You need to wake up. You're living in a parallel universe here. This claim would be like a beginning piano student who brags about being a concert pianist. This is a student who hasn't even learned where middle C is. I am a concert pianist. That's exactly what's happened in verse 22. Now, what are God's expectations in light of this claim? Would you hold your finger in Romans 1 and turn with me back to the Old Testament? And I want to encourage you to do something. The the chairman of the board, Ken Olson, and I last week talked a little bit about this while you're going to Isaiah chapter 66. And Ken asked me a very interesting and important question. He was asking what my strategy was for putting verses on the screen. And some of you know that I have a a very opinionated strategy for when and how and why I put verses on the screen. Sometimes we do put verses on the screen during the message, something we want to really emphasize. But for the most part, We don't put a lot of the verses on the screen, do we? And here's the reason why, is I I want your eyes to to gaze at the verse on the page. I want the the, the pen in your pocket to to come out. I want the the pencil in your purse to come out, and you're circling words, you're highlighting words, you're, you're making connections. In my Bible, I know that Isaiah chapter 66 is on the right side of the page. That I just I just know it's there when I turn there, right? And so This is the plea for getting to know your Bibles, right? Getting to know your Bibles. Now look at the the important expectations that are set forth for all creatures in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. There's three expectations that occur here. But this is the one to whom I will look. That is to say, this is the one to whom God looks with favor. This is the one to whom God looks with a smile on his face. This is the one to whom God speaks kindly of. Notice what it says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The three qualities beginning with humility describe a person who submits to Almighty God. When Jareen and I do premarital counseling, we have a session where we talk about the S word. Remember that one, Marcus? The S word. Well, we all know what that is. That's the word submit. And we do our best to instruct young couples that the S word doesn't need to be called the S word anymore. Why? Because submission is a beautiful word. Young men, if you're not married yet, all the young men are smiling now. If you're not married yet and you're, you're looking for that special young woman, you look for a young woman who first and foremost submits to God. And second, as a a logical and theological extension of that, find a woman who also will submit 
to your leadership and your authority. Now, I almost shudder to say that, right? It just sounds so unlike the culture that we're a part of. A a woman is called to submit to God and her husband? Yes. Yes. And young men, here's what you'll find. When you find a young lady who does those things, you will find a contented, secure woman. We need to understand that submission is a good quality. It is also a necessary quality. The humble person, therefore, joyfully submits to God's sovereign designs. This person is eager to listen to God, learn about God, and obey the word of God. Let me flip this on its head. Young ladies, if you're looking for that special man, what you need to find is a man, a young man who is submissive to God, who submits to the word of God, who submits to the will of God, who submits to the sovereign plans of Almighty God. And so here's the first thing that God expects in light of this bold and audacious claim in verse 23, the sinful creature is called to be humble before God. Secondly, in Isaiah 66, the sinful creature is called to be contrite in spirit. That's a word we don't use much in our culture, but it simply means a person who is penitent, a person who has a repentant disposition. This is a person who has had a complete change of of mind about sin and righteousness. My favorite Puritan writer, Thomas Watson, says it like this. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. That's a great definition of repentance. And then the third thing that God expects from the sinful creature is that we tremble before God's word. The Hebrew word translated tremble in Isaiah 66 means to stand in awe. By the way, that's one of the reasons that we stand together for the reading of God's word. We, we, we tremble deep inside as we read and study the word of God. It was Calvin who said this. Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. We go back with me to Romans 1. And look at the beginning of verse 22, this sinful creature who makes the bold claim to be wise. This is a person who has never come into contact with their own sense of insignificance. They have failed to to link up or compare and contrast their insignificance with the majesty of God. And so a trembling person reveres God's word, he respects God's word, he reads God's word, he rejoices in God's word. But here's the tragedy. The tragedy in verses 22 and 23 is that the sinful creature fails on all accounts. There is no humility. There is no contrition. There is no trembling before God's word. Would you Once again, hold your finger in Romans 1 and go over to the book of James. The book of James. And in James chapter 4, we get a very interesting look at God's response to the arrogant 
posture or the arrogant disposition of a person that we're studying in Romans chapter 1, verse 22. James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, but he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're here this morning and you say, yeah, pastor, I'm not a humble person. I'm not a contrite in spirit, and I don't tremble at God's word. I do my own thing. I'm a self-made woman. I'm a self-made man. I'm just kind of here because I came with my friend. He forced me here. She forced me here. And yeah, guilty on all accounts. I would say I commend you for your honesty. However, if you're a person who is not humble or contrite in spirit and you don't tremble at God's word, you need to understand from James chapter 4 that the holy God of the universe is opposing you to your face. He is opposing you to your face. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34 says, Toward the scorners, he is scornful. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. If you can make your way to Daniel chapter 4, would you do that quickly with me? Because we have a, a powerful illustration in Daniel chapter 4 about Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is, a, is an example of a man who was not humble, who was not contrite in spirit, who did not tremble at God's word. And I want you to see what happens in this important section of Scripture. Daniel chapter 4, beginning of verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of, you see what it says there? My majesty. Doesn't that sound like the typical American man? I am the self-made man. I did it. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Now here's this individual making this bold and presumptuous claim, just like the creature in Romans chapter 1, verse 22. And he hears a voice from heaven that says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word is fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. If you have ever seen the movie Castaway, starring Tom Hanks, and by the looks on some of your faces, you have. Do you remember after several months 
on that island. Indeed, I think he was there for almost four years, if my memory serves me correctly. Tom Hanks' character became, he moved from this well-groomed, handsome businessman to this crazy guy with a huge beard and hair coming out of his ears, right? That's what I visualize here in Daniel chapter 4. God sent the arrogant man out to pasture. God opposed Nebuchadnezzar to his face, and he also opposes every person who fails to worship him as he demands. Move with me now from the posture to the problem. The problem is also found in Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Paul says, claiming to be wise, and here's the problem, they became fools. And as I read this, and maybe even for the first time, as I've read this text over and over for several years, a strange irony occurs. For the one who makes the bold claim to wisdom, the one who stands on his or her perch and says, I make the claim to be wise in all reality, Paul says, is a what? He's a fool. And we know this word translated fool here in Romans chapter 1. It comes from the Greek word morino. Now, you might not be able to hear it there, but if you've ever called someone a moron, remember in third grade, you moron, <laughs> you're calling that person a morino. That person is a fool. Its definition is one who is devoid of good sense or judgment, you moron. That's what a moron is. It's a person whose reason has been utterly affected. It's been utterly impaired. The, the affections, the, the heart in the moron is easily influenced by the world. This is a mind that is quickly deceived and led astray. This is a heart that is captured by the things of the world. There's a portrait of such a fool in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Where Paul says that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Where people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I have friends who are teachers who say that if they could go back to college, they would choose a different major because this is what students act like. We are in the last days. And so for those of you, for, for Abby, God bless you for being a light in a dark place. For all of the teachers in our congregation, God bless you for serving in our school district and being examples of God's love to these students who are acting like Paul describes in 2 Timothy. Move with me now from the posture and the problem to something very sobering. It's what I refer to as the pagan exchange. The pagan exchange where the folly of the fool is exposed in verse 23. Paul says this, that this sinful creature exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Do we have shoppers here this morning? Anyone like to shop? We have a lot of people not very honest. Who, where are the shoppers? Thank you. So if you're a shopper, you know what it's like to make a purchase. Think about your purchase. What comes next? I'm going back to the store and I'm going to make an exchange. And even if you're not a shopper, we all have an Aunt Matilda. And there's always a great danger in using someone's name because like some of you probably have an Aunt Matilda. But you get that sweater for Christmas from Aunt Matilda. It's worth $60. And you say to yourself, I wouldn't pay six cents for that thing. And what do you do? You grab the gift receipt. You go back to the store. And what do you do? Someone yell it out. You exchange it. You exchange it. And so we understand this concept of the exchange. The word here in Romans 1 means to put in the place of another. And I want to illustrate what's happening with the sinful creature in the sinful exchange because I'm convinced that we have not felt the weightiness of the pagan exchange. And I want to illustrate this with a bag of cashews. You say, Pastor's lost his mind. He's lost his marbles. Um, since Dreen and I started eating a little bit more healthy, as I mentioned uh, last week, about 18 months ago, um, I have discovered cashews. This is my favorite snack in the whole wide world. They're good for you. They're tasty. And they fill you up. In fact, if you walked into my study, more often than not, you'd probably see me munching on cashews. Right? So where are the Christians and kids? Are they here? I think someone took it. But the Christians and kids bring me from time to time Reese's peanut butter cups. And I just, I love them for that. But I have, I have moved on from Reese's peanut butter cups to God's favorite snack, cashews. And so now that you know how, how, how much I love cashews, I'm going to use the, the glorious cashew to illustrate the seriousness of the pagan exchange. Let's, let's look at this photograph, Tom. I want you to imagine that you are the proud owner of a Lamborghini. Amen? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> this particular Lamborghini retails for $316,000. Why anyone would ever pay $360,000 for a car is beyond me, but work with the illustration. You are the proud owner of this beautiful $316,000 Lamborghini. And one day you wake up, and I'll use the, a man because it's the man probably that owns the Lamborghini, right? He's the ding-dong that bought the car, right? <laughs> and all the wives say amen to that, right? Don't you ever do that. One morning you wake up and you tell your wife, I'm going to go for a drive. She says, where are you going, honey? says, I'm going to the grocery store. She said, okay, I'll see you after a while. So you get in your Lamborghini and you sit in the leather seats and turn on your $25,000 stereo system and you bust down the road. You're going to go all the way up to Linden to Safeway. And you're going to go up to the counter, customer service counter, and you're going to tell the woman at the counter, I'd like to exchange something today. And she says, oh, what would that be, sir? You say, I'd like to exchange my Lamborghini for a bag of cashews. April, holder, 
you're working the counter that day. And I'm the guy that comes in with the, the bag of cashews, and I'm going to make that exchange. In fact, I'm going to say, we're just going to go, I will give you the cashews, and you get the Lamborghini. What would you say to me? <laughs> okay, Rick, Rick, <laughs> Rick. What would you say if... Fair trade? Fair trade? <laughs> you know, did you all know that the last couple of illustrations have just fallen flat? <laughs> so we're going to resurrect this one, right? Here's what the person... Because I don't, I don't think this is in your skin yet, right? We're really going to do this. All I want is a bag of cashews. $1.99 for this little bag of cashews, and you get my Lamborghini. Wouldn't the person behind the counter say, You're nuts! Exactly! Thank you! You have gone crazy! You have gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs! Who in their right mind would exchange a $316,000 Lamborghini for a bag of cashews? This is exactly what happens with the pagan exchange. But there's a big difference. There's a big difference. The exchange with the Lamborghini and the cashews is just flat out dumb, right? It's just dumb. The exchange that takes place in verse 22 and 23 is not just dumb. It's damning. It's damning. For when the creature exchanges the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, he or she invites the white hot wrath of God. Isaiah 48 verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Deuteronomy 7 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. By the way, that is a great verse to memorize. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and who repay to their face those who hate him by destroying him. He will not be slack with all who hate him. He will repay him to his face for every pagan who makes the exchange from the immortal God for images Resembling birds and animals and creeping things, they will face the almighty wrath of God. You see, the exchange, the pagan exchange, exchange is nothing less than red-hot idol worship. And what we find here is the very essence of idolatry in verses 22 and 23. The creature exchanges the immortal God for images that resemble other creatures. If you like to highlight, if you look with me at verse 23, that word immortal, that comes from a word that means imperishable. And who does immortal refer to? It refers to, to our God. He is imperishable. He is incorruptible. He is not subject to decay. He is not subject to breaking down. 
He is the God who is eternal. He is the God who lasts forever. And Paul uses this very same term in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to how he uses it. He says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But what do we find in Romans 1? The creature exchanges the immortal God for another creature. Creatures who are finite, cursed by sin, and perishing. Instead of being driven by a supreme love for God and a passion for his glory, the creature is driven by idol worship. That's why Calvin referred in the 16th century to the human heart as an idol factory. And you know that I've had conversations with people over the years about that quote, and that's one that really gets people irritated. My heart is not an idol factory. You know, we're born into this world. Chunk, chunk, chunk. We're idol factories. That's how we come into this world. Listen to what Calvin says. From this, we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind is as full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God, a little G-O-D, according to his own capacity, as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. Calvin proceeds to use the nation of Israel as an example. Let me read the context here for you and you're very familiar with it in exodus chapter 32 moses is on the mountain receiving the law of god and in verse 32 we read when the people saw that moses delayed to come down from the mountain the people gathered themselves together to aaron and said to him up Make us gods, little G-O-D-S, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Listen to Calvin's comment. He says, daily experience teaches that flesh is always uneasy until it is obtained some figment like itself in which it may fondly find solace as in an image of God. That's exactly what's happening in Exodus 32. He continues, In almost every age since the beginning of the world, men, in order that they might obey this blind desire, have set up symbols in which they believed God appeared before their bodily eyes. End quote. And so I walk into a Russian Orthodox church in Minsk, Belarus, and I watch a young man about my age wearing a leather jacket, cool looking guy, walk into the church and he goes from icon to icon to icon, kissing the icon. By the way, the word translated images in Romans 1, icon, That's where we get that phrase, icon. And I watch this individual as I have tears in my eyes. Go up to a casket where a saint has been placed in the casket, kissing with his lips 
the casket. I'm going to work for my salvation. I'm going to do something for my salvation. I'm going to achieve something for my salvation. But all the while, we are involved in this pagan exchange. We have, we have exchanged the, the immortal God for the perishable creature. Now, it is important to understand when the sinful creature makes such an exchange, it often appears in religious garb. It often appears in religious clothes. It even will give an appearance of spirituality. I think you know what I'm referring to. Peter Jones says this, any spirituality which fails to proclaim Jesus, born, crucified, and raised, is ultimately no spirituality at all. You see, we can say we're spiritual until we're blue in the face. But if our spirituality is not focused on the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, we are not spiritual. We have exchanged the immortal God for perishing and sinful creatures. Pagan spirituality is a dead end which is destined for eternal judgment. And I encourage you, I challenge you to... To keep your ears open, when you go to the bookstore, when you go to the market, when you go to the park, wherever you go, listen for these conversations. When you watch television, when you listen uh, to the radio, when you watch movies together, listen for this mantra of, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You see, it sounds so good. It looks so good. But at the end of the day, it is a lie. And so this is the fifth indictment. Namely, that the creature fails to worship God as he demands. The creature is guilty. The creature is guilty. Along with the other four indictments. And we've moved from the the posture to the problem to the pagan exchange. Look finally with me at the price The sinner must pay. And of course, we all know that in our legal system, when a criminal is indicted, there is always a price to pay. And the same holds true for for the creature who fails to honor God as God. The same holds true for the creature who fails to give thanks to God or have a heart for God, who fails to worship God as he demands. There is a price to pay. Look at what Ravi Zacharias says. This is very good. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you were willing to pay. And I believe that what many Christians have forgotten is that God is a judge. I I believe with all my heart that even in some conservative circles, in some conservative denominations that we have bought the lie of the old German liberalism that says God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament and he's only a God of love in the new. Look at one final passage with me, if you would, in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to learn much to the chagrin of our German liberal opponents, that God is in fact 
a judge. And it's not only the liberals that are trying to convince us that God is not a judge. Our culture is trying to convince us that God is not a judge. Look at Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, nestled into these verses, I want you to see the five marks of God as a judge. And as Christ followers here at Christ Fellowship, we, we don't cave to culture, do we? We don't capitulate to culture. We don't compromise with culture. And so when culture tells us and when the liberal theologians tell us that God is not a judge, he's only love, we respond with we obey and believe the word of God. And Acts chapter 17 tells us that God is a judge. First, we see that God is a, a patient judge. And aren't you glad that God is a patient judge? Aren't you glad that God is a patient judge? Verse 30, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. Some have said God winked. We also see that God is an authoritative judge. Here in this passage, we see that he demands, he commands repentance. Repent means to change your mind, to change from the better, to abhor your past sin. I was reading a new book by the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Got it all together. And the president says that some preachers have eliminated the word repentance out of the vo the, the vocabulary. That repentance is not heard in the pulpit anymore. But he made a plea to his readers that repentance is not only important, repentance is a biblical word. And here we see that God is an authoritative judge. He demands repentance. Number three, we see that God is a comprehensive judge. Notice who he commands to repent. He says he commands all people everywhere to repent. So no one is excluded. Because you live in Linden doesn't mean you're excluded. Because you live in Bellingham doesn't mean you're excluded. Because you live in Bellevue doesn't mean you're excluded. It doesn't matter who you are. All sinful creatures are called to repent. God is a comprehensive judge. Number four, God is a decisive judge. My mind was drawn to that phrase. He has fixed a day. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And finally, we see that God in Acts 17 is a righteous judge. He will judge the world in righteousness. And so there is a heavy price to pay for every creature who refuses to worship God as he demands. I was drawn to the verse in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, that says this, the soul who sins shall die. That is the price that the sinful creature will pay. Last week, we learned that the gavel serves two purposes. We learned that the gavel acquits and the gavel also condemns. And so this morning, as I look out on a sea of beautiful faces, I see people who fall into one of two categories. I see some of you who are acquitted 
Many of you have been acquitted, and some of you are still condemned. For the acquitted, those who have been acquitted, who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, may I remind you that all of your sins, as Jason prayed earlier, have been forgiven, past, present, and future. Did you know that if you've been acquitted, every sin that you will commit tomorrow and you will commit sins tomorrow are already forgiven? You have been justified. You have not been forgiven by your merits. You have not been been forgiven by the offering that you put in the bag. You have not been forgiven because you serve in ministry. You have not been forgiven because you're a good gal or a good guy or a pretty gal or a pretty guy. You have been forgiven because of all that Christ accomplished on Calvary's cross. You have been forgiven because of the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ came and lived a life that you could never live and died a death that we all deserve to die. It is because of Jesus that you have been acquitted. And in light of what we have learned today and over the last few weeks, I want to encourage you, if you stand among the acquitted, if you are innocent, if you are a Christ follower, to delight in God, who is the creator. Listen to Calvin once again. He says, we must be persuaded. And not only that as he once formed the world, so he sustains it with boundless power, governs it by his wisdom, preserves it by his goodness. In particular, rules the human race with justice and judgment, bears with them in mercy, shields them by his protection, but also that not a particle of light or wisdom or justice or power or genuine truth will anywhere be found which, was not, which does not flow from him and of which he is not the cause. In this way, we must learn to expect and ask all things from him and thankfully ascribe to him whatever we receive. And may I encourage you to revel in God the Creator, to delight in God the Creator. This is my encouragement for my friends who are Christ followers, the ones who have been acquitted. May I also remind you and encourage you to flee from idolatry. When you're faced with the temptation to be an idol worshiper, and you will face the temptation every day, to flee from idolatry, as John says in 1 John 5, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, And when you flee from idolatry, by definition, you flee to the cross. You have Forrest Gump in your mind, right? You're running from idolatry, but at the same time, you're running to the cross. Flee from idolatry and flee to the cross. But there are some of you this morning who have not yet been acquitted. You stand among the condemned. And if you've been with us for the last three weeks... Every time you hear the rap of the gavel, every time you hear the gavel hit that wooden object, it sends shivers up your spine, not because it startled you. And I've heard that from many of you. It sends sends shivers up your spine because you realize that you stand guilty before a holy God. I want you to think 
in your mind's eye about the five indictments that we have discovered together. And I want to read a passage that will be, quite frankly, shocking to you if you've never read it. I want you to think of the five indictments and to ask yourself, which indictment have I violated? Is it the first? Is it the second? Is it the fifth? Is it the third? Is it one and three? Which one is it? And you come to this conclusion. If you will confess that you have violated anything before a holy God, if you stand guilty, here's what James chapter 2 verse 10 says. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point, he has been accountable for all of it. That is to say, if you're indicted... On the first count, you're indicted on the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth. You stand guilty. And so today, if you stand condemned, you you must acknowledge your sin before a holy God. You must confess your sin. You must turn from your sin. You must not turn to your own resources. You, You turn to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you cry out and utter something like this, Oh God! You are holy, and I am not. And God, I realize, perhaps for the first time, that I stand guilty, and I deserve eternal punishment. And I recognize that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live the life that I could never live, to die a death on the cross that I deserve, that Jesus Christ offers eternal life and forgiveness for everyone who believes. I accept that completed work of Christ on my behalf. And if you say that today in your heart of hearts, the Bible says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I have an atheist friend who years ago said to me, hey, pastor, have you saved anyone lately? And I had one of those George Costanza moments, right? I didn't have the answer. I was like, yeah, no. Driving down the road, I thought to myself, "Ah, I know what I should have said. Saved from what? But then the next day, I had a better thought and a more biblical thought. Saved from whom? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. My friends, today is the day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will no longer be condemned. You will stand among the acquitted. And when you hear the rap of the gavel, when you hear the rap of the gavel, you will know that you no longer stand condemned. You stand before a holy God is innocent, all because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for leading us through these verses over the last few weeks, for helping us to see the gravity of these indictments. Lord, as serious as they are, these charges are are mind-blowing. They are earth-shattering. But more than that, we're, we're blown away by the reality of the gospel. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for, for standing in as our substitute, for bearing the weight of our sin on Calvary's cross. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that... Now we are seated in the heavenlies if we are in Christ, that we have new hearts and new minds and new dispositions. 
And, and whenever we do sin, that you are our defense attorney, that you stand in our defense before the Father, and that we are forgiven. So thank you for the hope that we enjoy in Christ on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.